Well, last week, we began our, our next section in Proverbs. Uh, it was verses uh, 14, 15, and 16 of verse tw uh, chapter 25. And uh, we only got through one verse, but it, uh, you know, it was, it was well worth our time. And uh, we dealt with the aspect of spiritual gifts and uh, how important uh, those really are, and yet how completely misunderstood that they are. And, uh, you know, from time to time in our teaching and our preaching, whether it be Thursday night or on Sunday morning, uh, there'll be a message that'll come along that we'll lay out that, in my estimation, <coughs> will be a, a, a doctrinal statement. It'll be more than just a message. <coughs> It'll be something that <coughs> covers a subject uh, in great detail to the point where it kind of needs to be archived, you know, where if someplace down the line in the future or in your life, if you want to go through that study and get all that you can from it, you know, it's available for you. It doesn't happen many times, most of the time, they're just sermons where you can glean a lot of principles. But every once in a while, <coughs> something will come up <coughs> and we'll deal with it. And uh, it, uh, it won't be a general sermon that you'll get, like I said, a number of principles, but rather a doctrinal statement uh, that needs to be uh, put into your library or our library on the website uh, that people for now and future generations can always uh, go back to. You know, <coughs> I don't have a lot of books in my library. Uh, you know, most pastors, if you'd go into their office, if you could ever get in, uh, they're, they're showcased behind their back with books cased with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books in them. I can say to you right now that they haven't read any of them. There are actual places where you can buy books by uh, the pound or books by the inch or however you want to do it that you can just line your walls with them. And it gives the impression that you're really, I mean, it's an impressive thing. You're going to see that when most pastors have their pictures taken, it's books are behind them. That's very subtly, you know, trying to display to the people who's looking at that, that they're well read and well, you know, really, wow, I've got, got a lot of books. I've had a young guy say, go into a guy's office and say, man, did you see all the books that he had? Yeah, did you know he hadn't read any of them? That's how it usually works. And uh, in my library, I have about 40 books. Uh, I went through 400,000 books in my lifetime, but I only kept 40. And those 40 books are books that I will continually go back through because in specifics, they'll give me something that I really want or really need. And over the years, I've accumulated them and got rid of the junk and kept the ones that I will go back to. There's about three or four books that I will read every year just to keep myself up on it. And, uh, you know, it's, these messages are like those books. Uh, there'll be something that you'll want to keep, something that you'll want to go back. You know, a while back on a Sunday morning, I believe it was a Sunday morning. Yeah, it was. I did a, a sermon on wine, new wine versus old wine, out of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And that's a, classic, that's a classic message that is a doctrinal statement. It's a definitive statement. You can go to that passage and go to that material and you get everything you'll ever want to know about anything, about drinking alcohol, new wine, old wine, how the Bible deals with it. In Genesis chapter 24, we have on the website, I've done it many times, on how to find a spouse. The 19 or 20 principles found there that if you're looking for a mate, looking for a spouse, looking for, uh, you know, someone to spend the rest of your life with, there are principles that you must follow or you should follow. And uh, those, that's, a, that's a statement. That's, a, that's something that you, you want to hang on to. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, we've taught it many times, you know, the definitive passage on how somebody gets into the ministry. 
in the life of Samuel. We talked about uh, that many, many times. Thursday night, Thursday night, somebody asked a question out of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we talked about the doctrinal definitive passage in the New Testament on marriage, divorce, and remarriage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And you can take places like that and sit down and get everything that the Bible has to say on it, that when you walk away from it, if you've done your work, you got it down. You have everything that there is. Obviously, we've done them on the King James Bible. I don't know if we've done them on church history. They're quite a little more lengthy. But uh, in people ministry yesterday, we, we went through, and I gave you the seven men in the Old Testament that is a complete picture of what your Christian life should be. Those are definitive messages that do more than just like a shotgun effect where everybody can get something out of it. These are specific that if you want to learn segments of the Bible that you have to learn, by the way, in time in your life, this is how, this is how you do it. And last week we did that with the biblical teaching on spiritual gifts, um, as complete and thorough as it could be, uh, using the Bible to define spiritual gifts for us and how they will fit into our lives. And it was based on the verse in Proverbs chapter 25 last week, verse 14, where it says, Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds without wind or rain. And we talked about how that in Christianity today, um, people are boasting of great spiritual things in their life, uh, but there's no power. There's no authority. Uh, The thing that the scribes and the Pharisees hated about the Lord Jesus Christ was his doctrine. Because it tells you very clearly that his doctrine that they hated was the authority that he had that they didn't have. And, you know, people with a false gift, they're like, you know, they're, they're like the old saying, there's a lot of smoke, but there's no fire. There's no power. There's no authority. There's no impact. You know, nothing to impact your life to lead you or force you or to ex- deal in your heart and your life to change by bringing you under conviction. I won't tell you something. Preaching or sermons, whether it's teaching, preaching, or whatever it is. If the end of the day, if it doesn't convict you about something in your life, there's something wrong with it. Because the Word of God convicts. That's what it does. And you'll remember, we define spiritual gifts out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. There again, the definitive passages of the New Testament on spiritual gifts. And we found out there was an order to spiritual gifts. There's three orders to it. There's the gifts of the office, which is a pastor, a bishop. There's the sign gifts that were given to the apostles. And then there's the gifts that we hear so much about that we have are to empower us uh, to do the work of God. And we we talked about how that salvation, God gave you uh, the Spirit of God. All that the Spirit of God that God has, you got the day you got saved. You may not know how to use it all yet, but you got it all. It's there. And as you grow in maturity, you learn how to use that spirit, and the spirit learns better how to use you. And so you got the spirit of God, the same exact spirit, every, every aspect that Christ had or God has. You don't, like the charismatics, get half the spirit, and then you got to get baptism of the Holy Ghost to get more of the spirit, and then it comes, no, no. The moment you got saved, you, as far as the spirit of God is concerned, you got everything that God himself has inside you today. So then he gave you his spirit, then he gave you his mind. 
And just like you have all of God's spirit that God has, you have all that God's mind. Everything that's in God's mind, you have in the book that God gave you. And that's why our issue is with the King James Bible. God doesn't change his mind. You have this Bible here, and you have an NIV over here that's got 86,000 changes between the two. You're telling me that God changed his mind 86,000 times. I don't believe that. You got a book at the day you got saved that is everything that is in God's mind that you have that you don't have to wonder about what God thinks about anything. Now, just like the Spirit of God. The more you get into the Spirit of God, the more the Spirit of God gets in you. And just like the Spirit of God with the Bible, the more you read the Bible, the more the Bible begins to read you. And it's a, it's a complete deal. And then you've got his body. You've got his body. You were called, the church is called the body of Christ. And you're in that spiritual body right now, but there's a day coming at the rapture of the church when you're going to get the glorified spiritual body and then you'll be absolutely uh, completed as far as everything that God's had for you and for me and then we move on into eternity. So you got all of God in those three things. And we talked about how that uh, the modern day Baptist pastors and, and the neo-evangelical crowd and, and most Christians, they'll hamstring their people by the ridiculous teaching uh, on our relationship with God that, uh, you know, that you have one main gift or two gifts, and that's what you find and that's what you focus on. And, of course, we talked about the ridiculously stupid gift test that everybody gives to find your spiritual gift. I showed you that in the Bible. You have the fruit of the Spirit, and you have the gifts of the Spirit. And you have the power of God in your life, which is the gifts, but you have to have the character of God in your life. You'll never have the power of God in your life to do the work that God wants you to do. Do you first have the character of God in your life to do that work for Him? And when you get the character of God in your life and then you do the work of God, God empowers you through the spirit that you have and gives you whatever you need to get the job done within the category of our, of our three gifts that we talked about or the three orders of the gifts. And... Uh, you know, this will stand last week as a doctrinal statement of what the Bible teaches on the aspect of spiritual gifts. And, uh, you know, it'll add to your spiritual library uh, as you add them to your faith and you grow and you materialize. So that was last week. And I'm telling you that because we're going to get into the next verse today. And these verses kind of go together. So it's kind of, uh, it's not good to just jump in cold without kind of bridging it through. So today we're going to look at the next verse. Uh, there's two more verses. We won't get through both of them today, uh, and we're going we're gonna to learn from them. So I wanna, I'm going to read both verses, and then we're going to go from there. It says, By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Hast thou, hast thou found honey? Eat so much as is sufficient for thee, lest thou be filled therewith and vomit it. Let's, Bob Gregg, would you ask God blessing on the sermon this morning? Father, we just thank you. Amen. Thank you, buddy. Now, verse 15 says, By long forbearing is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. 
Now, this will be a great lesson with the principles uh, that we're going to look at uh, for anybody who has a desire to, to work with people. Uh, it's also, uh, first of all, like everything else, has to be applied to you first. So it'll be great for some of you who are beginning to build your relationship with the Lord. Um, uh, but either uh, as a, a position as a pastor or a person who works alongside of the pastor, me, uh, working and dealing with people's needs. These will be some great principles. It'll be good for you if uh, you're growing in the Lord and you're maturing that process in your life, or if you're someone who, who is working with me uh, hand in hand and you're working with people like so many of you are, uh, or in your own life that you're going to someday, you know, God's going to call you into the ministry and uh, you're going to, uh, it'll help you. It'll help you. Uh, it's a single concept we're going to talk about today, but it has many aspects uh, that we have to consider. And I personally think that it's one of the great keys to a successful ministry, and not only that, but a successful Christian life. Now, the overall concept of what he's saying here is just basically two things. We're going to look at the first one for a while, and then we'll come into the second one. And the first one is dealing with people's lives to the, and the situations you find them in. It will take an incredible amount of long forbearing. Now, this is also called long-suffering in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, but most generally, it's known as the word patience. And I want to talk to you about patience today out of this passage here. And let me clear something up based on uh, last week that uh, I want to make clear that you understand. Man said to me one time, he said, you know, he says, I don't have a lot of patience. He says, that's not my spiritual gift. And I remember when he said that, I thought to myself, I, I didn't say anything to him, but I, I said, thought to myself, I remembered 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, that uh, uh, patience is not a, a spiritual gift. Patience is something that 2 Peter 1, 5 tells us that we are add to our faith. It's not a gift. It's not something that oh, I gave you patience and didn't give you patience. It's something that as you grow and you mature, there's seven things there in that passage that we are to add to our faith as we grow and mature, and patience is one of them. But yet I, I, I look at that and I think to myself, how nice it is to be able to disqualify yourself from something that you don't want to fix in your life by simply saying, that's not my gift. <laughs> and that's what human nature does. Amen. And I told you last week about the ridiculously stupid uh, spiritual gift test that you take the test and you grade yourself on a level one to five on, on your own spirituality. Do you ever figure out why in high school they never let you grade your own tests? <laughs> Anybody? They won't let you grade your own test because they don't trust you. Because they know, bottom line is, you're going you're gonna to pass yourself. You're not going to be honest enough to fail yourself unless you're just stupid. <laughs> well, how ridiculously stupid is it to allow you and me, who still has an old sin nature, by the way, who likes to think of ourselves higher than we are, to take a test that you gauge your spirituality on one to five and then you're going to tally it up. And you know, I, I've been in these situations where you, you figure out what your gift is and then you walk around, yes, I have that gift. Yes, I have the gift of 
compassion. I have that. Don't touch me. I have that gift. I've not yet ascended to the Father. I've, I, I know how it works, man. <laughs> I know how it works. I just threw that in there to see how many knew that was in the Bible. I'm pretty impressed. Two of them. You know, it's a, a guy told me one time, he says, well, I don't, I'm not a soul winner. And I say, he, he said, soul winning's not my spiritual gift. And I did say something to him. I said, you know what? I said, soul winning is not a spiritual gift. You know what soul winning is? Soul winning is the absolute proof positive that you have an intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get married, and most of you do, and most of you will, and most of you that aren't want to, and, 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 and some of you who are headed that way, let me tell you about the facts of life. Commonly called the birds and the bees. I know all about this because I put a bird and bees in a bottle one time and they killed each other. So I'm good to tell you how this thing goes. When you enter into the holy marriage matrimony of sacrilegious money, 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 whatever it is. When two people enter into that intimate relationship, they're going to produce fruit at some point. Maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time. And if they don't do something to stop that, they're going to have a baby. It's the intimate relationship between a husband and wife that in time will bear fruit. And you and I as a child of God are to bear fruit. And it comes from the intimate relationship that we have with Christ spiritually that is going to produce fruit. Maybe not every person you meet, maybe not every time you talk to somebody, maybe not every week, maybe not every month. Uh, it's, it, there's no time frame to it. But I'm telling you, soul winning is not a spiritual gift any more than patience is. Soul winning is the product, byproduct, of your intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, and the Word of God, that in time, just like a husband and wife, will bear fruit. It's just that simple. It's, it, it's not hard. Uh, human nature, this is true of all of us, human nature will always excuse itself. Unless you find just a totally honest person, which I carry $5 in my wallet if I ever do. I've had it now for 45 years. Human nature will always pass the buck to somebody else. I mean, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it's nice because it means that if you don't have the spiritual gift of, of patience, then you don't have to be patient and nobody can hold you accountable to it. That if you don't have the gift of soul winning, that you don't have to win people to Christ, you can do other things, uh, but nobody can ever hold you accountable to it because of the fact that it's not your gift. So you're, how could you be responsible for patience if God didn't give you the gift of patience? That's how human nature works. I was watching the news this week, and uh, President Trump's wife, who I think is a nice lady, I think she's, she's a very nice lady, she was heading up a, a, uh, a contingency for uh, the, uh, the prescription drug epidemic. Uh, the people are taking prescription drugs and getting addicted to them. And she was talking, and I always like to listen to what people say. And she said that the main problem that we have is a lot of people will not come forward and say, I'm addicted to prescription drugs. And she says, it's nothing to be ashamed of. She says, it's a sickness, just like if you had the flu or you had pneumonia or you had this, and you need to get treatment and help for the addiction just like if you were sick with an ailment because it's a sickness. And I looked at that and I thought to myself, that's exactly how the Word looks at it. She thinks they don't want to come and get 
uh, get help because they, they're embarrassed because it's a sickness. I know better. I've been in the ministry for almost 50 years. They don't come and get fixed because they keep like taking them. They don't want to get it fixed. But that's where we're at today. You know, I'm an alcoholic, but it's not my fault because the alcoholism was in my family. So therefore, uh, it's a disease. It's a sickness. I'm a drug addict because my mom took drugs when she was carrying me as a baby. And now I have those drug genes in me. And uh, there you buy those right next to the Levi ones. They're on the shelf. <laughs> and now I have, you know, I'm a drug addict because it's not my fault. When you take, listen to me, when you take your personal responsibility away from your life by making what the Bible clearly says is sin, you make it a sickness, you can't fix anything. What are you going to do? Go to a psychiatrist and go to a doctor and he's going to give you a pill for your drug addiction? If you're an alcoholic, well, they can give you an abuse. That's always good. When you get drunk, it makes you throw up. That's always fun to watch. But anyway, it's a thing where it's sin, and as long as, as a man doesn't get the change in his heart, it, it, the problem with man is not what he does. The problem is man is in his heart. He's made bad choices to do the wrong thing. And, uh, you know, we like in Christianity, we do the same thing. Well, that's not my gift, so I don't have to do it. No, you're to add those things to your faith. Spiritual winning people to Christ is something that happens in your life as you grow. You build upon the foundation gold, silver, precious stones, gold, who he is, silver, what he did for you, precious stones, people. You can't know what, who God is and what he did for you without telling somebody else about it. There's the problem. Now, James chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 says, it tells us that patience needs to be developed. It's not a gift. It needs to be developed as we grow and we mature. He says, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And we have to allow patience to do a perfect work in us, verse 4. In other words, when you add patience to your life, your spiritual life, and God begins to develop that through the work, the ministry that you're doing for God, He will bring things into our lives that will try us. They'll stretch us. They'll pull us. But in time, they will make us. And then the perfect worth of patience will be in our lives. Patience isn't something that you, you, you just, God gives you and doesn't give others. When you're faced with a situation in life, and we're all going to be faced with them, some on different levels, but at the end of the day, you have one choice in your life. You're going to run to God or you're going to run away from God. That's all the choices you got. And he wants to perfect patience in your life. Patience has a work that it does in you. It perfects you. A child of God will not have patience because he doesn't have the gift of patience. He will not have patience because he won't develop it and add it to his faith. Patience is a character quality of Christ. It's called long-suffering in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. It's not a gift. It's, it's, a, it's one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit of God. As you develop yourself and you grow up into Him, Ephesians 4, 15 last week. As you grow to be more like Christ every day of your life and you consciously are looking to put the character qualities of Christ in your life, that you want to grow up not unto Him, but into him. 
And as you grow and mature in the Word of God in, 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 in ministry, then God will develop through that ministry, the ministry with people, those areas in your life that, that you and I need. Now, I'm going to talk today, and there's many avenues we could deal with. I, I picked three major areas about patience that I want to talk about today. Obviously, you know, patience goes down many roads. I mean, uh, I'm going to talk about the three major ones here, but patience will all the way come down to waiting in the drive-thru at McDonald's when there's 20 cars in front of you and you're really hungry. Patience will come down to you taking your dog out to go potty when it's raining outside and he's sniffing everything and doing what he's supposed to be doing. I know. But I want to talk about three main ones. You can figure out the rest. But I want to tell you, the first thing I want to talk about is patience in our own walk, in our own relationship with the Lord. I'd say, based on my experience of dealing with people for many, many, many years, the number one issue that gets us all into trouble will be getting into a hurry in our uh, inability to, to wait on the Lord. That get us in trouble more times than anything else that we do. You know, in my life, many, many years ago, God gave me a great verse found in Psalms that, that I've always loved. I've always thought it was, it was one of my favorite principles of life. I've never really preached on it. I don't think I've ever even given it to anybody. But it's something in my own personal life that uh, uh, helped me learn to wait on God. Because I want to tell you, if you go to the dictionary and look up the word impatience, my picture would be there. I had to learn when it came to the ministry and people and the things that we're going to talk about today, I had to learn patience. Just something that I had to add to my faith. And I remember years ago, uh, I saw this psalm, Psalm 123. And it, it, it's one of those life-changing psalms. I mean, it's just, whoa, it just was everything that, you know, that I could ever want uh, to help me. Uh, and it says this. It says, Unto thee lift up mine eyes, O Lord, that dwellest in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their masters, and as the eyes of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, so our eyes wait upon the Lord, our God, until he have mercy upon us. Do you understand the gravity of that verse? That is one of the most impacting, powerful verses that you will ever have in your life. With our eyes waiting upon the Lord. What does that mean? Can you grasp and understand the great concept of that? He's saying that when you have something that isn't happening in your time frame and you have to wait on God, don't just sit and pace and fume and fret over why God's not doing. Wait on God with your eyes. Get in the book. Find the promises and the principles that God has given you. Continue to claim those promises and those principles. Find the patterns by which God does things in people's lives. Follow the principles, read the patterns, watch the promises, and then with your eyes, wait upon the Lord for Him to come through. One of the greatest concepts you'll ever have. Because in our lives, God's timing is everything. We live in such a fast-paced world where we demand everything right now. We want everything now. I've told you many, many times we've talked about this, how that, you know, years ago, back in the 60s, I remember back in Canton, Ohio, I was just 10 years old, the first McDonald's opened up, and f hamburgers were 15 cents. 
And uh, it was a place that uh, everybody was going to, and it was claimed fast food. Fast food because you didn't have to cook it. Fast food because you just went inside and they had them ready, you picked it up and went from there. But as society progressed and people got more impatient in life, fast food restaurants weren't fast enough. So then we put a fast food drive-through in the fast food restaurant so you get your fast food even faster. Now that doesn't work because, tell me, my worst night is Thursday night after a Bible study. You know I want my cheeseburgers. I go to that McDonald's down here on Nolan Road. For whatever reason, on Thursday night, human beings don't work there. Two chickens and a duck. <laughs> they got two lines. One line wasn't fast enough. They put it in two lines. Now, how in the world the person sitting in there who is below minimum wage probably is never going to work for aerodynamics, sitting in a little booth with a headphone on, can't see out there, and she's taking orders in two lanes trying to keep them straight. And it, I, I pull up to the first one. And, it, uh, you know, I, and first of all, I've, I've given my all to you Thursday night. I'm hungry. The prophet needs a little, little food. I mean, there was a widow in Elijah's time that had a little room with a little stool and all kinds of food for him. I got to go get my own. I don't mind that. It's fast food. I'm a fast guy. I got dogs tap dancing at home. Got to go out. I go through the fast food lane and it's backed up because the two chickens and the ducks are in there doing something else. And so I, I wait in line. But more than once that I just, I, I, and then you pull up to the speaker and there's nobody home. Now you can hear him talking to the other person on the other speaker, but I was at that speaker first. The chicken and the duck doesn't see that. So they're talking to the other person who, very frankly, doesn't need two cheeseburgers. I can see through the window. I need two cheeseburgers. So I'm waiting there. There's been many a times I just drove on up to the window. No, 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 I, I do. I just drive on up to the window. Why? Because I'm impatient. Look, I'm a fair guy. But if you're going to call it fast food, then it better be well be fast food. It's just that simple. Don't say it's fast food and it's, I could go to Arthur Bryant's and drive down and get it and get back and then eat it at home before I get to that thing. And then I get to the speaker, there's two of them. Of course, a lot of people like fast food. So I pull up to the first speaker. There's another one up here, but somebody's blocked that one because they're doing their order. She says, what do you want? I says, let me ask you, are you the chicken or are you the duck? Because it depends on how I'm going to talk to you. <laughs> I give my order. Now, the person in front of me pulls around. So I pull up, but I'm, now I'm in front of the second one. The same person comes on and says, can I take your order? I said, you want it again? I just gave it to you at, at milepost 106 down here. You want another one? You want another order? Oh, no, 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 that's fine. Hey, I found it's a lot faster just to bypass the speakers and get up there. 
and, and I and, and I've done different things. You know, I don't. I, I sometimes I pretend like I'm I'm more deaf than I am, and I try to do sign language, and they don't get it. So I write it down: two cheeseburgers and a coke. But that was not fast enough. Now you know what they got. You don't even have to leave. You can get an Uber driver bring it to you. How fast is that? Hey, I know where it's going with all these drones. It won't be long that you just call it in and a drone will be over your house with your Big Mac. Lay it down in your front yard. People get impatient with things like that. I get impatient with things like that. It amazes me. I got you know, the Bible says confess your faults one to another, so go ahead. Oh. <laughs> it amazes me, honestly. I don't under, I can be so patient about some things. What are the things I just have no patience for? I mean, I, I'm just telling you. But I'm going to tell you, the number one issue that we have is we get impatient in things in our life because our society is so geared that everything is fast. Fast food, fast this, fast that. You go to the airport where everybody else is getting script searched, you can get a little deal and run you right through. Yes. <laughs> Everything is fast today. Everything. We live in a world that does not tolerate, has no patience. That's why kids don't save any money today. In my day, my mom and dad saved money. I learned to save money. People don't save money. The kids don't growing up don't save money today. They, they, it, it just, they spend it as fast as they get it. They go to the mall just to see what they don't have. And you, you go to the place where you, you know, you get on the internet and you can, I mean, you can, you got the, the that channel where you buy all that stuff. <laughs> you know, there's people addicted to drugs, there's people that are addicted to alcohol, and there's people that are addicted to prescription drugs. But you know there's people who are addicted to that channel? They buy stuff that they don't even know they need, don't even need, and it packs up in their house. When the Bible talks about, the, you know, in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to tempt Christ, I always, that always, you know, that always amazed me that God's timing in our lives is everything. Now, we get in such a hurry, we just bypass God's timing. In Matthew chapter 4, when the devil came to Christ, <coughs> he tried to get him to do four things, or three things. <coughs> and when you look at those three things, you'll find that there was nothing wrong with those three things because Christ is going to do every one of those three things at the second coming of Christ. He was trying to get him to do them now. In other words, the devil sometimes will try to get us to do the right thing at the wrong time. Paul said in Romans 8, 28, he says, but if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? A while back I talked to you about you know, in Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4, I talked to you about a vision, you know, for your kids. We were going through child training. And it talks about there, it talks about that we are to write the vision, that we are to make it plain. But then we're to wait for it. We don't have any problem writing it and making it plain. Our problem is waiting for God to do in your life what you think has to happen today. Romans 12, 7 says, we're told to wait on ministry and let it take its course. 
The older I get, the less in a hurry I get. I've learned some things over the years, and I'm just telling you, I, I realize that it's all in God's timing. I'll, I'll wait on him with my eyes. I'll, I'll know what he wants. I'll know what he's going to do. But God's people today have no patience to wait for, for the things of God in their lives. You know, it, it took me about 20 to 30 years to figure out what my job was versus what God's job is. And the reason why we screw up so many times in our lives because we never figured it out or we are so busy doing God's job that we don't ever get our job done. I promise you, if you and I will focus on and learn what our job is that God wants us to do, I guarantee you he will do his. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 5 and 6, and we think that gain is godliness. But yet the Bible says that contentment with godliness is great gain. Being able to wait on God. You're taught when you go into the ministry, if you go to a Bible college someplace or whatever, uh, what they teach you to how to build a church is the first thing you've got to have is you've got to have a building. And so they, you know, the kid goes out and he, you know, he gets a group of people and, and they're, they're struggling and they're young and, and he has been taught that if you get your people committed to a building program, then that will anchor them in the church and then you, that's how you build a church. That is the stupidest advice anybody could ever give you. I'm not going to anchor anybody in a church building, but I will anchor you in the Word of God. If I waste my time in a building, it ain't going to go anywhere. If I put my investment of anchoring you in the book, then we can do whatever we want to do with that. But that's the way it's at today. And, you know, there, we live in a mentality that, uh, you know, the, the, the bigger the church is, the more grandioso it is, the, uh, the more the people are going to like it and are going to want to come to it. And there's an element of truth in that. Because people today, most Christians, that's what they want. They think Christianity is a main chandelier in the ballroom. I was taught years ago that real Christianity is never the main chandelier in the ballroom. Real Christianity is the light bulb on the back porch. But nobody wants to go that route anymore. Now we have our building here and, you know, there have been people come down and look at it and you can see that, you know, one glance, this is not what they expected. And, you know, and uh, we're here, uh, uh, we're here in a, a place that used to be an antique mall, it used to be a place where, where cars were, were displayed in it. It's been all kinds of things. And when we started our church, we, we didn't, I've never, I've never been concerned about a building. You know why? Because I had learned when we started this church, which was almost 16 years ago now, I had learned that that wasn't my job. And my job is not to find a building. That's God's job. My job is to be equipped to preach and to be ready to go and then say to God, okay, I've done my job. What's wrong with you? Uh, we looked for a place to start and uh, back then, and we uh, called the, we were down here at the uh, little place down the road here that Larry belonged here. What's it called? The Pavilion. Now, uh, we were down there for three or four years, and Larry, who owns all of the buildings around here, just a nice guy, one of the nicest people, loves this church, loves us, supports it. You know, he loves our people ministry. 
Uh, you know, he, he always has is, is, is just been so good to us. And we were down there, but we had it back then where we just rented it because they had things all the time. So we rented it two hours on Sunday morning and two hours on Thursday night. We didn't have it any other time. We couldn't, if we wanted to have an activity, we had to rent it or do something else or go someplace else. So we were there for about, and I was cool with that. We didn't have any place for the kids. Remember, we built those old partitions back there for the kids and tried to block the sound out. Didn't work very well. Uh, but it, uh, that's where we were, and I was satisfied with that. One day, Larry, in fact, it was on an anniversary Sunday. It had to be about the fourth or fifth year we were in existence. Larry called me, and he says, hey, I want to meet with you next week. And I said, okay. I said, that'd be great, Larry. And I, so I come up, and then he walked me down here. And I cannot tell you the disarray this place was in. I mean, you look at it now, and it's, it's really nice. But it was, oh, it was terrible. It was just stuff stacked everywhere. It was unbelievable, all the way back. And I walked down here, and Larry, I didn't know what he was doing. And Larry said, uh, you know, I, he says, I, I want you to have this down here. He says, I want you to have a place that is yours. He says, uh, the rent you're paying up at this place uh, for just the two times you use it, he says, there's 10,000 square foot here. Um, I'm going to let you have this. I'm not going to raise your rent. I'm not going to, it's yours. You fix it up however you want to fix it. If there's something breaks, I'll fix it. I'll pay the utilities. I'll do this. I'll do that. It's your place. You do what you want to do with it. So we got our guys together. We moved up here, and uh, this is what we did. And we, we built the kids' things down there. We built this up here. And then about a year and a half ago, Larry called me in again, and he says, uh, do you want this place upstairs here where your prayer groups are? And I said, yeah. I said, I'll, I'll take that. He says, okay. In other words, I, had, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, God, I didn't pray for God to give us a building. I didn't pray for the upstairs. I didn't pray for this. I was just doing my job. And you know what my job was? My job was to make sure every time on Thursday and Sunday that I was prepared to give you the Word of God. That's my job. I didn't get sidetracked in looking for a building or wondering about a building or wondering this. I figured that when God wanted to give us the building, He'd give us the building. And God gave us what we wanted. Now, people come down and in their mindset, this is not much of a church. It's everything to me. Amen. See, it isn't anything to you because you don't got anything invested in it. I guarantee you, if you live close to here and the Russians attack and you have to find a bomb shelter, you'll be begging to get in down here. <laughs> and we'll, we'll be like Noah in the ark. We're closing the door. Now, we'll let you in, and I'll put about nine guys on here. They'll work you over right up to the point you die of radiation poisoning. But anyway, <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is where we are. I, I wouldn't, if somebody came by and said, we're going to give you this grand, we want you to have this grand, I, I'm satisfied right here. You know why? I'll tell you why. Because 100%, I, I can't say this about anything in my life. But I know for sure in this building, in this church, right here where I'm standing and where you're sitting, this is where God wanted us to be and God gave us this. I ain't trading that for anything. First thing they do. I, I was at a church one time and John Christensen was there too. Remember Goofy Ball over there in, uh, in No Hope? I'm New Hope, No Hope. This is the guy that, not the guy there now, he's a pretty good guy, but this was back in the day. And this guy, he, they had a nice church, didn't they, John? There's nothing wrong with that church. Had a gymnasium. It was a nice church, but he, here again, the mentality is he wants to build a bigger, grander addition. So, you know, he gets a building. He, he, he goes and 
He gets the property and makes a deal without talking to anybody, didn't he, John? John was a deacon back then. They kicked John out, and then John came over here. Thank God they kicked you out. I still remember the day you called me on the phone. Remember that day? That was the greatest day of my life that you didn't have any, you wanted to come to my church. I, my wife and I said, when we left that to start a church, and the old pastor started this church, Wayland, good man. And uh, my wife always said, there was two people we wanted was you two. And God gave us the desires of our heart. And then I got the rest of them. I mean, she didn't have the shoes she's got on today back then, but we, we like them anyhow. <laughs> Hold one of them up, would you? Just take it off. Okay. So, so this guy wants to put him into a building program. He asked every family in the church, was it a thousand or two thousand, John? I can't remember. It was a lot of money. He asked every family in that church to go get a thousand dollars to buy the land. And then to make sure he could pressure you into that, he put a big board up there behind his pulpit, praising the Lord with the names of all the people who gave a thousand dollars. You know, with that, two sides of that coin, isn't there, buddy, huh? That showed the ones who did it, but it also put pressure on the ones who didn't. Yeah. Well, he's doing 25 years of life, so we're okay. <laughs> God took care of that one. <laughs> but, but I'm telling you, <laughs> God gave us this, man. I would trade this for anything. This God gave us that. Wasn't looking for it. Wasn't asking for it. Wasn't. I, I realized that my job is to be ready to give out the word of God. It's God's job to have a place for me to do it. And it's a thing where, hey, it, 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 you know much. You know how much. You know how many heart attacks preachers are have because they've got their people into a multi-billion building program. I talked to a guy one time who their church had just, had just uh, decided they were going to build a new building. And they didn't need one either. But it was like $80 million. $80 million. And he told me, he said, he boasted, he said, we took up a special offering today to kick off our drive and we raised $100,000 today. He said that like it was something special. And I looked back and I said, wow, that's great. You only got to do that 800 more times. <laughs> Idiot. <laughs> Try that every week. <laughs> Try it every month. <laughs> if you tried it every year, you'd have that church paid for it 800 years. <laughs> Oh, golly, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. I, 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 I just, you know, I, I, I came to the point where I realized that, you know what, I have my job to do, God had his. And I just start with what God give me, like the loaves and the fishes. God just multiplied it. You know, and it's, you know, it's God's people today, they, they have no patience to wait for the things of the Lord. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 tells us that uh, there's a, a time for every purpose under heaven. And he lists 28 things that there's a timing to. Uh, you'll find that when Christ died on the cross, he keeps talking about the fact that mine hour has not yet come. There's a timing involved. 
And God's people can't wait on the Lord for anything today. They just can't. They can't wait to find a spouse. So they get themselves in all kinds of problems. They get married way too soon. They, 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 they can't wait for their children to get to the point because they want their kids saved. This is the funny thing. They want their kids saved so desperately that the first time the kid comes home and says, I'm going to get saved, and he's three years old, they win him to Christ. They can't wait and follow Romans chapter 7, which is the definitive passage on training your child and winning your child to Christ. They can't wait for that to happen. So the very parent that can't wait for his child to get saved condemns him many times to a lake of fire simply because of the fact that they're impatient. I've seen parents, you know, that can't be patient with their children. Let them be kids. Your, your kids, male or female, have no right at 14 or 15 looking like a 25 or 26-year-old. Dressing like it. I've seen teenagers that were 12 and 13, and I thought to myself, man, where were you at when I was in the sixth grade? <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> it's just a, just a phrase. Okay. They can't be patient to wait for anything in life. And being patient is, is not a it's not a natural thing. It isn't. None of us are just born with patience. Not when it comes to the maybe things in life, big things in life. It's something that you have to add, you have to develop, you have to come to the place in your life where you, you grow into. Uh, being patient is not a natural thing. It's a, it's a maturity concept. It's you know, understanding who God is and how he works and then just wait upon him with your eyes. Keep following the promises and the principles. Being patient, knowing that God knows the very desires of our hearts. But it has to be, in, for, to, for, to be for our profit, it has to be in his timing. So our eyes wait upon the Lord. You stay with the promises. You stay with the principles. Now, I'll tell you the second area that, that is, is hard, and I add this because in time, some of, the, some of you will probably do this, and that is in building a church. And, and let me say, if you ever pastor a church, uh, know this, that it will take all the patience uh, that you have. And that's why uh, when you're in a church that trains men and women, you you learn those things now. We get the idea today that the definition of a church is that megachurch concept of 10,000 people. And of course, as it's been said many, many times, just because you get 10,000 people in a building does not mean that it's a church. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing easy about it. You're going to find that there's going to be setbacks. You're going to find that there's going to be opposition. You're going to find that there's going to be times of discouragement. There's going to be obstructions that comes into your life. It, the greatest two books that I've ever found that really show you the, the ministry of what the reality of it is is the books of Nehemiah and Ezra. You'll find there that when they went back to build Jerusalem and the wall, which is a picture of somebody building a church, the four main oppositions that they faced will be the four main oppositions that, that you face. 
You know, and, you know, I've helped many a young man that has went out of my ministry over the years, you know. I know that because young pastors, some pastors, young pastors will make some big mistakes because they don't have the experience. I know it was true of me. If I wouldn't have had Mel Sabaka, you know, back in the day that when I went out to Kansas City, way back in 1976, I would have, uh, I would have never made it. I, I, I was on the phone with him all the time. I had to have somebody who understood what I didn't yet to fall back on so I wouldn't make any stupid mistakes. You know, building a church is like building a house or putting a room addition onto your house. It's gonna, you're going to learn three things when you do that. One, it's going to take longer than you thought. Two, it's going it's to be harder than you thought. And three, it's going to cost more than you thought. And the key to it all will be forbearing. The key to it all will be patience, long-suffering, following the patterns and the principles and staying with it and allowing God to build it while you do your job and He does His. Being patient with that. New Year's Eve, we're going to have Jim Lake here to preach for us. Jim Lake, as far as I am concerned, is is one of the most incredible individuals that I ever met in my life. I like to have him here to preach whenever I can. Nobody knows the story of Jim, and, and uh, you know, Jim's not a flashy guy. He, he's, not, he's not loud. He's, boisterous. he's a very quiet guy who just does what God's called him to do. But Jim went up to Mount Pelier, Vermont, after I came to Kansas City. In fact, Jim helped me move out here. And him and I drove out together in the U-Haul and we, he helped me move out here. We've been best friends for forever. And after that time, he went to Mount Pelium of Vermont to build a church. And, um, you know, Mount Pelier, Vermont is a vacation spot of New England. It's a very high class, high society, very classy place. That along with being in New England, makes it the field to build a church almost impossible. New England is where it all started, and New England is where it all fell apart. It's Barry Sanders, not Barry Sanders, to Barry, uh, uh, <laughs> what's the guy? <laughs> Barry Sanders, the football player. What's the guy's name that uh, is the, in Vermont, he's a senator? Bernie. Who? Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, yeah, Brian's brother. Right, yeah, your brother-in-law. Yeah, okay. That's his territory. Completely liberal. Totally against everything we're God. Jim Lake has been up there now for almost over 40 years. He's got a church of probably maybe 150, 200 people. That's an incredible thing. I cannot tell you how many guys have went to New England to build a church and didn't make it past a year, two years, three years, four years at the max. Jim's been there for over 40 years. And he is anchored down, hunkered down, and he's done a job. And he's got a church planted where, where nobody could ever plant one. It's unbelievable. And it all comes back to Jim being patient. Jim it just took his time. He did his job. He didn't get involved in a lot of goofy things. He just stayed focused on what God had called him to do. He did his job and allowed God to do his. And he's got a great church up there. And he's been an impact in a, in, a, in, a, in a witness to a lot of pastors up there that are struggling. And Jim is absolutely incredible, as far as I'm concerned, about building his church in Vermont. And he is the, he is the textbook.
of what it takes in patience. It's easy in Kansas City. Try it in Vermont. Try it in Massachusetts. It's, it's tough. And, you know, it comes down to just simply understanding patience and waiting on God and, and, and let him and the rest take care of itself. You just use the patterns. You, you stay with the principles. You don't try to make things happen. The job of a pastor, any pastor really, is just basically three things. You, you learn from the Word of God and the people that you, God has trained you with. You learn how to build a church. You learn what you're supposed to do. And then you have a biblical plan to do it. And then you just follow the patterns and allow God to do His work while you do yours. Now, I'll tell you that even in that, there's times you have to adjust and you have to change. But those are the fundamental things that you follow. There's no mass evangelism today. There's no programs that work today. There's no bus ministry today. If the 1960s and the 70s taught us anything, and we never learned from history, but they taught us anything. They taught us that the megachurch concept is not a biblical concept. We think it is today. We see the guys with the 20,000 in their attendance, or 10,000, or 5,000, or 6,000, and we think because everybody goes there, God must be there. Well, let me just say the Bible says that that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I'm telling you, all those mega churches back in the 60s and the 70s, they're nowhere to be found today. And that's a lesson that this generation of pastors have never learned because they don't learn anything from history. God's program has never been a mega church. You just take the people that God sends you and you take care of them. And I firmly believe that the problem with a mega church is you can't pastor and take care of that many people. And the principle is God won't give you any more people than you're willing to take care of. The rest of it you make happen. You build a church one family at a time. You build a church one person at a time, one couple at a time. It's never about quantity, but rather about quality. You reproduce what you're doing in others, and in time, you get 80, 90, 150 people that are doing what you're doing, and then it just multiplies itself. It has nothing to do with a building, or a program, or a rock band, or a Christian halftime show, or having a cafeteria, or a gymnasium. You build it through long-suffering, you build it through forbearing, and you build it through patience. And you let God do it one person at a time. And you be content with that. I learned a long time ago that most pastors don't make it into ministry very far because they're always focusing on what they don't have when they never look at what they do have. I always remember what I do have and I never care about what I don't have. Because what is have is what God has given me. And I had to learn that lesson the hard way. I didn't just come out knowing that. I had to go through some things in my life that, that, uh, that uh, God, uh, you know, had to teach me. Uh, you build it uh, through the patience and the forbearing and the long-suffering. And God will not only mature the people that you're ministering to, but he'll mature you through it. And then patience, you'll learn patience. And then patience will take on its perfect work. And God will do something in your life. Now, the third thing, boy, this is so true. The next one is for sure that you'll have to, you'll need patience in dealing with people. Yeah, you build a church one person at a time, that is for absolute sure, but there will be, the, theirs will be the challenge will be. 
The challenge will be people. Bob Jones Sr. wasn't too far off when he said, the more I'm around people, the better I like dogs. A lot of truth to that. Uh, people will fail. People will struggle. People will betray you. People will go behind your back. People will lie about you. Uh, people will, uh, you know, they'll, uh, they'll play you against uh, something or somebody else. It, it, it happens all the time. Uh, they will try to get it. They will get into something and it will become a stronghold in their life for the rest of their lives. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, just, it's just the way it works. They, 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 they will get into booze. They'll get into drugs. They'll get into music. They'll get into pornography. They'll get into money. They'll get into worldly possessions. And sometimes multiple or all of the above. You know, the great example in the Bible are, are, are the Christians are like Christianity, liken, or Christians are likened to sheep. You know, and, you know, Christ is likened to a sheep, the lamb, the lamb of God. But Christians, because Christ is a sheep or a lamb, we're likened to sheep. But I got to say something to you in the, in the real world. Sheep are the dumbest animals on the planet. They have a tendency for getting lost. They have a tendency to be curious and going places they shouldn't go. They have a tendency to get into trouble. And uh, when sheep get sick, you know what they do? They start staying away from the flock by themselves. All in all, they make pretty good Christians. <laughs> Erroneously, most pastors teach that as pastor, they're the, he's the shepherd. That starts with the Roman Catholic Church many, many years ago and the Episcopalian people and all that stuff. If you're a pastor, you're not a shepherd. The Bible tells us that there's only one shepherd and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the shepherd of the flock. I'm your pastor. I'm not, a shepherd. I'm not your shepherd. The Lord Jesus Christ is your shepherd. You say, well, what are you then? I'm the sheepdog. I'm the one who nips at your heels when you get away from the flock. I'm the one who barks at you when you, uh, you get off strayed. I'm the one that circles around you, and when you don't do what's right, I nudge you. And when you don't still do what's right, then I'll bark at you. When you still don't do what's right, then I'll bite your heels. And if that doesn't work, then I'll bite you someplace else. But I will bite you. <laughs> and it's a thing where, uh, you know, that's, 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 that's the way it works. And uh, listen, when you, I've got people in my ministry that I've known for 30, 40, 50 years. And they've been in and out all of their lives. They got into something a long time ago. It compounded itself. It got bad. And they're not bad people. They're really not. They're nice people. Uh, but they, you know, they, they just, uh, you know, they, they, for, you know, I've known them, many of them since they were 15, 16 years old. And, and they will never have the victory of the Christian life in their life. They go back and forth. They're in, they're out. They're up, they're down. Uh, they make every bad choice possible. Uh, they'll come back. They'll say, I want to do what's right. They'll come and see me. I want to do what's right. I really want to. I know I've screwed up. And I say, yeah, I know. Uh, we're here for you. We love you. Da, 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 da. They'll make a run out of it. And six months later, they're gone. Three years from now, they'll be back again. It's almost like if I was a farmer, I could plant my crops by you. You're so predictable. They'll come for six months or a year, and then they're gone. They're gone for two years, and then they're back again, and over and over and over. And then you got to add that they get into a bad marriage to it. They have children, and then the children become a compounding effect, and it becomes a terrible situation. 
And I'm telling you all that to say this. You got to deal with it. It would be nice that if I had a, uh, could just write people off and say, I don't, I don't want to deal with you. Uh, but you cannot take things like that personal. You can't develop an attitude about it. In my ministry, I have never given up on anybody. You may give up on yourself, but I will never give up on you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what situation you got yourself into. I only care of where you're at right now and where you want to go from here. Now, let me pause here and say there's one exception to this. I'm a fair guy, and I, but I've learned some things in the ministry. And, and you take your garden variety problems that people have and your sin issues that you struggle with, I'm good. I'm here for you forever. You can come in and come out. If it makes you feel better, we'll get the guys and put a revolving door back there, Bubba. And so they got a way in and out. It'll be fine. We're good for you. But I'll tell you one exception to that, and that is when somebody is subversive and goes behind my back. You go behind my back to undermine my ministry or my authority as a pastor by sidestepping me to get what you want. I've had people over the years enter into a little secret relationship with somebody else, and the thing is, you know, well, I want you to do it, but don't tell Bob. We don't want him to find out. You're done. I'm not mad at you. I love you, but I've learned that people like that in the long term are going to hurt you. I mean, it's just that simple. I have learned over the years that people who are subversive, who don't respect my authority as pastor, that, that uh, whether you like that or agree with that or not is immaterial. I'm here till God changes me out. And the bottom line is, that's my, my job is to lay down what goes on and who does this and who does that. You may not agree with it, but that's beside the point. There has to be somebody in charge. The buck has to stop someplace. When somebody circumvents that, goes behind my back, brings other people in, we're done. I, I love you. I'm there for you. I mean, uh, uh, but uh, I, 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 I can put up with everything, but I know that that Absalom syndrome that Jacob deception syndrome will not play in my ministry. I'm the fairest guy you'll ever meet. I, I, I love people. I'll do anything for you. I'll give you whatever I got. My patience uh, for, my impatience with McDonald's does not carry over into your world. <laughs> I have the patience of everything for you. And I'm going to tell you why in a minute. But I, I, am, I am more than patient. Those people that are in and out and up and down, they're welcome to come. I'll help them every time. Some of them have been back six or seven or eight times over 20, 30 years. And every time they come back, I meet them at the door. I hug them and I say, they say, I'm going to make it this time. I'd say, I'm with you. And they don't make it. It's okay. Had a guy a couple of, both well, seven or eight years ago now, and most of you know the story, but just so, you know, you know, he, I've known the guy for many, many, many years. And, uh, you know, he got to the place where he got a little group of people that didn't, uh, uh, didn't like what was going on here. And so he, 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 he got them together and they had a little meeting and um, they basically were going to go out and start their own church. 
I knew nothing about it at the point in time, and uh, you know, uh, it uh, it kind of uh, I got the word right before the week before they were going to start the church. But I pieced it together pretty quickly. And, and what he did was he called these people together, and basically, here was their plan. Now we're going to leave Old Paz and we're going to go start a church. So here's the deal. We need to stop going to church regularly. You go every other week, you go every three weeks, and, and we're going to kindly project this out uh, in, a, in the next six months. And by the time we get to six months, none of us are going to be going there, and we're going to go start our own church. And then when Bob says anything, you, you can just say, well, I haven't been there for quite a while. That was the plan. See, that was the plan. And so he did. He took it. And, and you know what? And when I found out about it, what do you think I did? I gave him a pulpit because he didn't have one. Let him take some songbooks because he didn't have any. Of course, I blocked out all the songs. Because <laughs> I didn't take it personal. When I saw who he was taking, <laughs> you know where this is going, Nate, do you, buddy? I call him, my loving, affectionate term for him is my Thursday pastor. You say, why is that? So go ahead and say, why is that, Bob? Why is that, Bob? Because that's trash day at my house. <laughs> All he did was take out the trash. And I'm telling you right now, that church didn't last four, five, six years. Nobody would come to it because he couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. We got kids in the junior high department knew more Bible than he did. You talk about a, a false gift, boasting of a false gift, that was it. And I tried to help him. I could have I churched him. I could have yanked his ordination papers. I could have done all kinds of things. I didn't. You know what? Because, hey, the bottom line is simply this. If that's the way you feel, and my, my philosophy has been this way all my ministry. When it comes to my church and my people, you can have whoever you can steal. I'm okay with it. Because if you can steal them, you can have them. He knew the right people to contact. He knew not to contact you. Or you. Or you. You don't think you were in here yet. <laughs> but if he would have been, he would have not have contacted right, you. Right. He wouldn't have contacted Bob. He wouldn't have contacted you because you wouldn't have met the love of your life if you went with him. You <laughs> See the blessings of just keeping your eyes on the Lord. You know, I love you, man. You're my buddy. You know that. Yeah, okay. His church lasted about four or five years. Now, nowhere. Gone. Nowhere. And it's a thing where I let God take care of those things. But at the same time, I want nothing to do with it. I, I, I won't be part of it. Once a person does that to me and goes behind my back, I've had them do it always, all kinds of situations. You know what? It is what it is. But in your garden variety of issues that you have, I'm always here for you. I, I get it. Sometimes it takes a while to get it together. I get that. 
and, and God never gave up on, on the nation of Israel. And uh, you know what? Uh, he won't give up on you. People don't always respond as fast as we would like them to sometimes, do they? And we tend to get impatient. Sometimes it takes four or five years to get, get it together. I get it. I understand. Uh, I'm okay with that. As long as you're not subversive and, not, and you're just struggling and going through with some things, I'm fine with that. It's when you start that, don't tell Bob that we're going to do this. Well, Bob already knows you're doing it. <laughs> now, you may ask, given that, how do you, how do you put up with that? I mean, it would be so much easier just to write them off. I mean, plenty of people out there. Well, I just deal with them uh, like God was patient with me for 19 or 20 years. You know, you look at me standing up here preaching the Bible and giving you the Bible and doing this and doing that. You know I wasted the first 19, 20 years of my life and didn't do a thing for God. And God was trying to get a hold of my heart all through that period of time. And I just was in and out, up and down. I was way more out than in. I was worse than anybody that comes in and comes out. I wasn't coming in and coming out and coming back. I just wasn't going at all. You realize, I think of the games that I played with God in my life, the stupid things that I've done, and how not one time in all those years and all those things um, that He was never there for me when I was ready for Him. I just look at people through my own stupidity. I'll never forget, you know, my example with old Mel Sabaka. He never gave up on me. Mel Sabaka was a youth pastor there. Uh, and Gene, if you're listening to this, because you usually do, you'll know, you'll know this is what I'm talking about. you know it's true. That, uh, you know, we quit going to church as a family when I was still pretty young. And in my high school years, you know, I never uh, went to church. And, but I was, had been there, and there was on the rules. And every Tuesday night, Mel Sabaka was our visitation night where you went out and Mel Sabaka would send the kids out to me to try to invite me to church. Well, after a while, you know, it, it just, I, every Tuesday, and I would always give him the answer, yeah, I'll be there, but I wasn't going. And so after a while, I got so irritated with it that I just, I, I would, when I see him pull up in front, I'd head out the back door and across the field. My mom would say, he's not here. That seemed to work. Did that for about a month and a half, and then they pulled up up front one time, and I come out the back door, and there was Mel standing there. <laughs> I said, where are you going? <laughs> where are you going? And you know what? I look back and think to myself, where I'm at today, by the grace of God, where I'm at today and what God has done for me and what God has given me, goes back to a man like that who never gave up on me. So if that really meant something to me, how do I ever give up on you? How do I do that? You say, well, you don't know the stupid things that I've done. You want to compare notes? It isn't about that. We all do dumb things. It's about God never gives up on you. I can't give up on you simply for the fact that God never gave up on me. And I've got to be honest with you. Some of the best people in this church took a while to get it together. Some of you played volleyball, softball, three or four, five, six years before you ever came to church. And uh, it, it paid off. And it's okay. It's okay. You know why? Because you were worth waiting for. Amen. You're the gold. I remember the first time I met Bubba at a birthday party over at Waldo's Pizza. What a jerk he was. 
Wasn't a jerk. Good. Weren't you a jerk back then? I don't think so. Well, let me tell you, Bubba, you were worth waiting for. All of you were worth waiting for. Troy, you were worth waiting for. You were worth waiting for. It's, it's a thing where it's, a, it's Steve Brackeen. You were worth waiting for. Even though I slammed your head up against Marshall's Alley many a time when you were 15 years old. You were worth waiting for. You're all worth waiting for. Because God in my life waited for me. Sometimes we forget where we came from. And we want people to be so perfect when we weren't so perfect. And we get so impatient because, because they're just not where I want them to be. Well, for many, many years, we weren't where God wanted us to be. That same patience that God had for you, that forbearing and that long-suffering, is what you were to add to your faith as you mature and grow into Him. That's how it works. I don't like some of the things that people do, but you know what? You got to look past that. You got to realize that they're not doing it because that's who they really are. They're doing it because they're caught up in the world and they're not, God has changed, somebody's changed their name. And I've watched some of you, I've watched my people, I've watched you stick with people year after year after year. You invite them to softball, you invite them to volleyball, you, you just were, you were every time, three weeks out, two months out, you call them on the phone, we'll get, do volleyball now, we're doing softball, you just stayed with them, stayed with them, stayed with them, you never gave up on them. You had the patience of Job, James 5.11, and the verse says, through long bearing is a, is a prince persuaded, and a soft tongue breaketh the bone. Now, that last part of the verse, that prince there, doctrinally, would be obviously Christ in the millennium. This is a tribulation millennial passage here. But in, inspirationally, it's somebody who, who is in authority, somebody that you, you win over, who is maybe hardened like a bone, but you win them over in time, persuade them through your patience of allowing God to deal with them. I mean, you're going to find that sometimes there's a hardness to people, like a, like a bone. And sometimes they, they don't want to do what's right. And you can't develop an attitude. You can't write them off. You can't just simply say, you know, as, as long as they're just that garden variety of issues and there's no subversiveness there, they're just good people who are screwed up in, in, in life. Your persistence, your patience, your forbearing, your long-suffering will, will, will bring them around and persuade them. Over the last couple of weeks, we've, we've seen and learned some things now that we can build. We saw, first of all, in verse 11, how that we're to use words fitly spoken. And then we talked about in verse 12 that we are to develop the ability to hear what God is saying, the obedient ear. Verse 13 told us that we needed to be, once we got those things, in a, a faithful messenger. Growing in the fruit of the Spirit, God giving us the gifts of the Spirit, as you grow into Him and develop 
all that God has for you. And then you learn to be patient in three areas. You learn to be patient, first of all, in your own personal life with God. Second of all, in the ministry that God has given you. Third, with the people that go along with the ministry. Through forbearing, long-suffering, patient, persuading them to Christ, realizing that a soft answer through patience and waiting on God is the way to do it. <clears throat> Letting patience in your life do her perfect work. And a soft tongue with patience, forbearing, can break the hardest heart. And people see that love and that consistency in your life. James 5, 8 says, As be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. I leave you with Psalms 123, 1 and 2, as I gave you earlier. Behold, the eyes of servants look, as the eyes of servants look unto the hand of their master, and as the eye of a maiden unto the hand of her mistress, show our eyes wait upon the Lord our God until that he have mercy upon us. Being patient, waiting on God to do his work in his time. Waiting on him with our eyes, reading and claiming the promises and the principles, waiting for God to do what he does best. Till his time comes in when he realizes that, that it's time for him to do now what he is going to do, we have been patient. You focus on what your job is. Let God do his job. But through that understanding, without taking it personal, that patience is the key. Waiting for people to get where God wants them to be. And maybe they never will. But you never give up on them. They may have given up on themselves, but the thing many times that will bring them back will be you not giving up on them. Staying with them as best you can. Loving them, caring for them, as long as they follow the principles, love, love you, love the book, and are willing to, to uh, you know, the struggles that they have are going to be the struggles that we all have. So we'll hold up there.